This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello, welcome to Trumpet Hour Week in Review. Today is Friday, November 3rd. I'm Philip Nice, and you and I are joined by four writers from the Philadelphia Trumpet News Magazine, Jeremiah Jacques. Hello there. Andrew Miller. Hello. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. It's a pleasure to be here. One month ago at this time, demonic men were imagining and planning and preparing to massacre families in their homes. And on October 7th, they succeeded in that, probably beyond the wildest dream of the wildest killer among them. There have been reports that these killers expected that many of them would encounter guards or security or soldiers before they would encounter their target of unarmed men, women, and children. Uh, We now know which of those two things occurred, but now Hamas is encountering the soldiers. The terrorists and their supporters in Gaza have been hit by thousands of Israeli airstrikes, hundreds per day, some days, in fact. But as devastating as that tactic is, you see these large buildings reduced instantly to piles of slabs and gray dust. It has historically, that tactic has historically never been as effective as a ground invasion. And now we have a ground invasion. Israel defense forces, Jewish, but also secular, Christian, Jew, Arab, uh, Druze troops representing the state of Israel are on the ground in the Gaza Strip pushing toward Hamas. Mihailo Zekic will, of course, lead with the region that you watch and with this particular news event. But before you update us on this invasion in Gaza, can you give us a quick overview of the other main events in the Middle East this week? Yes, there's been, as usual, a flurry of activity uh, throughout the week, including right this moment, right now, uh, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, the Lebanese uh, Iranian proxy, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, was just giving a speech, the first time he gave a speech since the war started last month. Um, it was a pre-recorded speech. A lot of people were holding their breath on this because uh, Hezbollah threatened to directly engage Israel and invade Israel if the ground invasion started from the bits that I was able to hear right before recording. This looks like that's not going to happen. The usual, we will defeat the Zionist enemy in this grand coalition, but nothing, no actual announcements of anything. Although it is important to remember that there are still border skirmishes happening at the border with Lebanon. So that's a region to watch. Uh, Another bit of news that technically started last week, but is continuing on this week is a bit important and worth touching on. The two main factions in the civil war in Sudan, the the government and the rapid support forces, are having peace talks right now in Saudi Arabia. I can't go a program without mentioning Saudi Arabia at least once, I guess. But uh, so far, they've lasted several days without things falling apart. We'll see what happens with that war. Um, There's already millions of people that have been impacted, whether actually killed or uh, uprooted from their homes internally or fleeing as refugees abroad. And finally, on Wednesday, technically this video was released uh, last month, uh, right after the uh, October 7th massacre, but it was just published in English by Palestinian Media Watch, a video from Fatah, the so-called more moderate faction that runs the West Bank uh, surface that shows uh, 
terrorists from Fatah participating in the October 7th massacre. People like to portray Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas as these, you know, moderates, uh, formerly terrorists, but now renounced this evil, the, the main partner for Palestinian peace. Videos like that show the opposite. They're still a terror group. They still want to throw all Jews into the sea. Uh, again, we'll see how much fallout there is from this video making the rounds. Again, this has been around for a while and so far there hasn't been too much, but we'll keep our eyes on that if anything happens. It's interesting how much of news is a narrative. We are believing a narrative that this idea that Fatah, you know, these are the the Palestinians that you can trust not to, you know, engage in terror. And there they are involved in the October 7th massacre. One of the worst things that human beings have done to other human beings in living memory. Um, so that's, I, that I, that's news to me. I did not know that Fatah was involved and Hezbollah, as you say, uh, as you led with there, a crucial, crucial factor to watch in particular, uh, as much damage as Hamas can do and did do, uh, with whatever help it had from outside forces, Hezbollah far, far, uh, better armed and better equipped to, uh, unleash massacres all over uh, northern Israel. Uh, so, and, and as you and I were just talking about, uh, he gives us, uh, the leader there gives a speech, indicates that they're not declaring war or declines to declare war, I should say. And yet deception is exactly what Hamas used uh, prior to its its massacre. So definitely keep an eye on that for us. But go ahead and give us that update on the ground invasion in Gaza. Yes. Yeah, so there is a lot of noise out there. Israel, understandably, while they are publicizing a lot of what's going on with videos of the IDF in Gaza on the ground right now, there's also a lot they're not saying for obvious reasons because they don't want uh, Hamas to know what exactly they're up against. But from what we've been able to glean from different sources, Israel started its ground invasion actually probably around the time this program, this time last week, aired. Uh, Friday, late Friday uh, evening after the sunset on the uh, Sabbath, uh, what the New York Times calls a vast phalanx of tanks, armored vehicles, bulldozers, infantrymen, and combat engineers entered Gaza from the very top northeastern corner that's pretty close to where Gaza City is, and a second smaller column entered uh, Gaza from around the south, the central south area. And from what we can tell so far, since that initial invasion happened, they've been able to make a lot of progress. The Israeli government is considering this uh, a new phase of the war. That was Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu the day after the invasion started on the Saturday. Uh, here I'm talking about a new phase. So far, there have been skirmishes with Hamas, but there hasn't actually been that much resistance, or at least as much as we were expecting. A lot of analysts picture the number of terrorist soldiers, whatever you want to call them, that Hamas has at its disposal at about 30,000, some even say up to 40,000. There has been very, very little of those soldiers used so far. Israel, for their part, from what we can gather, have about 20,000 troops in Gaza right now, and I'm sure many more thousands outside on the border. As of yesterday, they were able to reach the outskirts of Gaza City, and it looks like from what we can tell, the Israelis are trying to encircle Gaza City, go after 
um, the head of this mini snake. We often talk about Iran being the head of the terrorist snake, but as far as Hamas is concerned, it's the head of its mini snake is right there in Gaza City. And so it looks like they're trying to cut it off from the rest of the uh, the area and uh, just go in and take out Hamas to the best of their ability. The humanitarian corridor, we are, we hear often about, uh, that's with the extreme southwest of the country at the crossing in Rafah with Egypt. As far as we know, that's still being operated, but its ability to access that really heavily populated area around Gaza City at this point is probably not the case. But again, there's just so much we don't know about. So do you think that Hamas is waiting for something that it wants to spring on the Israelis internally and that it's waiting on signals or actions from other terrorist groups or terrorist sponsoring groups outside of Israel? Are those are those things connected? There was one uh, terror group, a pretty major one, that did decide to jump in. Clip two. <laughs> بإطلاق دفعة كبيرة من الصواريخ البالستية والمجنحة وعدد كبير من الطائرات المسيرة على أهداف مختلفة للعدو الإسرائيلي. Now that was a spokesman for the Houthis, a, uh, a Shiite Iranian proxy in Yemen that control large swaths of the country, including the capital Sanaa and the Red Sea coastline. Yemen is obviously very, very far away from. Uh, Israel itself, but the Houthis are equipped like a modern army would be. They've fired a few missiles towards Israel before. This is the first time that that clip is from Tuesday, their declaration of war. Uh, but this is the first time that they've confirmed that they are going to war with Israel, and their missiles, some analysts are saying, is the first time ballistic missiles have been fired to Israel since Saddam Hussein tried to do so back in 1991. And the fact that they have technology that could reach Israel from all that way shows that uh, there's more to this than meet the eye. It's not, you know, just some faraway group that's pledging allegiance. They could actually do some damage. Uh, Israel, of course, has a, a naval presence in the Red Sea. They're uh, on guard with that. Saudi Arabia and Egypt actually have shot down some of the Houthi rockets because they're not friends of theirs either. Uh, it's highly doubtful that the Houthis are going to make any meaningful uh, contribution to this, though. We can't, we're not expecting thousands of Yemenis to all of a sudden show up on Israel's shores. We're going to have to wait and see how this all plays out. Again, everything's changing every day. There's so many twists and turns. There's a lot uh, many people aren't telling us. If our listeners would like to learn more, I'd recommend they look at the King of the South booklet if they haven't already. It's basically our one-stop shop for what Bible prophecy has to say about the Middle East. Uh, the two prophecies that pop into mind with this would include uh, Daniel 11 and Zechariah 14, which discuss World War III starting between a because of a clash between Israel and radical Islam. I don't think it's going to be this particular battle. It's too early to tell, but it's still part of a general trend we're watching, and either way would not be far away. Uh, so if our listeners would like to learn more, I'd highly recommend they order a copy of our editor-in-chief, Gerald Fleury's booklet, The King of the South. Daniel and Zechariah, two men who lived long, long ago, thousands of years ago, writing uh, something that could be coming into fruition right now. That's that's quite a claim to make, but there's a reason why those things have been preserved for thousands of years. And there's a reason why Gerald Flurry, Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry, focuses on those in The King of the South, uh, which at this point used to be a booklet. Now it's a full-on book. Uh, so order your copy there of The King of the South at thetrumpet.com. 
Our next region uh, will overlap a little bit with some of these events. Uh, that's the region of Asia. Jeremiah Jacques, can you give us a quick update of the main stories from Asia? Sure, yeah. <clears throat> First of all, a Wall Street Journal report yesterday said that Russian forces will be giving advanced air defense systems to Hezbollah, you know, mainly so that Hezbollah can take down Israeli warplanes. So if there is any doubt about which side the Russians are on, this uh, report should put an end to that. But it's very alarming to see Russia taking this big step toward, you know, almost entering the, the conflict, at least in an indirect way. And then in a related story, Russia's representative to the United Nations said this week that Israel has no right to defend itself against Hamas because Israel is an occupying power. So you, okay. you, you really see the Russians aiming for gold and mental gymnastics uh, with this one. But, but somehow the Russian representative said this with a straight face. And then another story here about Vietnam planning to build a port on Russia's east coast. This is to simplify and greatly increase trade between Vietnam and Russia. It's interesting because a lot of attention has been drawn lately to Vietnam's strengthening ties with America. But at the trumpet, we would expect Vietnam to eventually part ways with the U.S. and ally with Russia and China instead. And this port and these plans for greatly boosted trade could, could be you know, laying the groundwork for that shift. One final short story here about China's rapidly growing fleet of attack submarines. This was in The Diplomat on Tuesday, and it shows new models that China's bringing online that could really tip the scales significantly more in uh, China's favor in the event of a naval war against American forces in the South China Sea. So just more evidence showing that America's grip on the South China Sea and the sea gates that allow access to it is slipping. So in connection with the conflict in the Middle East, just very interesting that Russia is indirectly, barely indirectly, uh, par participating and, and opposing uh, Israel. That's a, that's a very troubling thing. I mean, for a long time, Russia has been kept out of the Middle East for all intents and purposes. That's not the case anymore. The United States certainly is not uh, as dominant or maybe even dominant. Uh, in the Middle East, in the same way that it that it was before. Uh, so, what what's the story that from Asia that we want to just drill down on it, uh, this week? Yeah, well, Mahilo mentioned that uh, the the war in Israel has entered a new phase. The big story for my region is that Russia's war on Ukraine has also entered a new phase, and it's not good for the Ukrainians. It is uh, basically now in a phase of what military analysts call positional warfare of static and attritional fighting. So this assessment comes from one of Ukraine's top generals, Valery Zaluzny. He's commander-in-chief, actually, of Ukraine's armed forces. And he was interviewed by The Economist in just a, I think this was just a bombshell piece published on Wednesday. And Zaluzny also published an essay to go along with that interview. And his overall message is that Ukraine's counteroffensive against Russian forces, now four months old, five months old, has basically hit a stalemate. In one quote from this interview, he said, if you look at the math that we did in planning the counteroffensive, four months should have been enough time for us to have reached Crimea, to have fought in Crimea, and to have returned from Crimea. And then he goes on to say that once, you know, he saw that that wasn't happening, he thought maybe the problem was with the commanders. So he changed the commanders out, but that didn't really make much difference. And then Zaluzny writes, there will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. 
So it's a, it's a very sobering assessment. And Zaluzny says that this is for two main reasons. First of all, the Ukrainians underestimated Russia's willingness to tolerate massive casualties among its troops. The, uh, the number of Russian casualties, especially in the last month or two, has been just off the charts. Russia, we know, has been emptying out its prisons in order to have a, an almost endless supply of soldiers, even without having to do another mobilization. And it means that the numerical advantage is steeply in Russia's favor. And the Ukrainians did not expect them to have the stomach to just keep on throwing men into the meat grinder. And Zaluzny actually says that he takes full responsibility for this miscalculation. He writes, It was my mistake. Russia lost at least 150,000 people killed. In any other country, such losses would have stopped the war, but not in Russia where life is cheap. In this sense... Putin's Russian Federation is truly an absolute anomaly. Even in former times, human lives in Russia were not valued as cheaply as they are now. For comparison, similar-scale losses in the Soviet-Finnish war forced even Stalin to stop wow. and refused to seize further territories. But Putin continues to grind his citizens into minced meat without any sense, and they obediently go to slaughter. End quote. So... Just very, very sobering there. So, so that's the first reason, just Russia's willingness to suffer stunning casualties that no one else would. Um, that's the first reason for the stalemate. And the other one is that the two sides have reached a level of technological parity, essentially, that means neither can overpower the other. Ukraine has long requested help from the West in gaining air superiority. Since the first weeks of the war, I believe, they've asked for uh, fighter jets. But Western powers have dragged their feet about that. And it means that Russia has had air superiority. Um, Russia has also had better electronic warfare capabilities, largely for the same reasons, you know, just a kind of a reluctance on the part of, of Ukraine's backers to give it what would be needed to tip the scales. So... All of this, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's over and that Russia has won, but it does indicate that unless there's a pretty drastic change in the West's, you know, willingness to give Ukraine more and better weaponry, then it's hard to see how Ukraine can push Russia out. And uh, when we pair this with what we'll be hearing a little later in the show about Europe tiring of, of the war effort and tiring of helping Ukraine, and when, when you add to that the situation in the U.S., with more and more Ukraine fatigue, especially among Republicans. And when, when we consider how the war in Israel is now becoming a higher priority for many, then it's, uh, it's hard to see how this might turn around for the Ukrainians. But that being said, I did want to play a brief clip here from The Telegraph's Francis Dernley. How much should we trust this document? Why give the enemy such insights into your strengths and weaknesses? Does it paint the full picture? Kievan has proven itself very adept at leverage, so one wonders whether there might be more to this than meets the eye. So that was Francis Sternley of The Telegraph there, and I think that's an interesting set of questions that he raises. Um, this interview and this article from the chief of Ukraine's armed forces, it may not be fully transparent in every way, and it may be part of a strategy that we don't fully understand at the moment. So it basically just means that even though it looks like a stalemate has set in, it's not over. The full-scale war has been raging for 20 months now, and the course of events has really it's surprised and humbled many of us several times, including me, and confounded our you know expectations. So we still have to just wait and see how it ultimately unfolds. That assessment, that is very interesting that it's coming from the commander-in-chief of Ukraine and that he's saying it publicly. 
you know, don't expect a deep and beautiful breakthrough when, you know, a lot of the times, even when you've got great odds stacked against you, you're saying, we're going to break through. So an interesting thing to uh, consider there. But, but just that point about life is cheap. I mean, that's not just rhetoric. That's true. Life is cheap in Gaza. Life is cheap in uh, Israel. Life is cheap in Russia. 150,000 Russians killed, not killed and wounded, but killed. Uh, and the option is to continue grinding the meat in this way or to escalate the war with more uh, you know, powerful weapons, which Russia will then surely use more powerful weapons up to and perhaps including uh, nuclear weapons. Um, not that we expect that necessarily, but it's, it's a possibility. Um, what is the outcome of this turn in the, in the river of this war, uh, that you see it flowing toward? Yeah. Well, you know, as I said, there are many things that we, we just don't know at this point that we can't really know. Um, but there is one thing that we can be sure of because it's foretold in Bible prophecy, and that is that Vladimir Putin will come out of this undamaged and, and probably actually stronger, both in terms of his rule of the Russians and his influence over many of Russia's partner nations. So this comes mainly from Ezekiel 38. This passage is about a figure called the Prince of Russia, if it's translated correctly. And uh, Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Daryl Flurry has said that the facts of this passage show that this Prince of Russia is none other than Vladimir Putin. In his booklet on this topic, he writes, When you study these scriptures alongside current events revealing modern Moscow's imperialist direction, you see that Russian President Vladimir Putin is the prince of Russia. So because of this, we should, uh, you know, expect Russia to most likely win in Ukraine. But even if it doesn't go exactly the way there that they wanted it to, we can still be sure that whatever happens, Putin isn't going anywhere. And he'll go on to fight other wars far larger than this one. So for anyone who would like to understand that chapter of Ezekiel and the other passages that relate to it, I hope they'll order a free copy of Mr. Flurry's booklet on this topic. It's called The Prophesied Prince of Russia. The Prophesied Prince of Russia. I'm looking at that right now at thetrumpet.com. Uh, initial copyright date on that is 2017. So um, several years ago, he might have even spoken on that previous to the the booklet being published. But uh, that's a, a bold, bold forecast to not only tie Bible prophecy to current events, but to a specific person, a specific man who could be, you know, die of a heart attack or, you know, be assassinated. I mean, a lot of people probably want to assassinate him, but he has, as you have brought out, remained in power, grown in power, uh, withstood uh, all kinds of resistance. And uh, and uh, Mr. Flurry claims in that booklet that you, you need to order the prophesied prince of Russia that Vladimir Putin specifically is uh, named, mentioned, his, his, his role is mentioned in Ezekiel 38. Again, that's the prophesied Prince of Russia at thetrumpet.com. Our next region that we want to cover is Europe. Richard Palmer has joined us. Mr. Palmer, can you give us an update of the main events that have been happening there recently? As usual, there's more news stories about Europe standing up to Islam. Uh, I do really think that the response of the, the big protests that, uh, I mean, we'll get into anti-Semitism in the second half, but a, a substantial proportion of this is a Muslim problem, a Muslim migrant problem. It is focusing uh, a lot of European leaders on on this issue of large numbers of Muslim migrants in their countries. So we've seen more movement 
there, Denmark, uh, just over a week ago, they were bulldozing entire Muslim communities. Uh, Sweden, Finland, Denmark, Norway, and Iceland have kind of come together with a, in a um, Scandinavian, pan-Scandinavian idea of returning migrants without legal residence to their countries of origin and kind of putting together plans for that. Uh, also, when it comes to religion, a story that caught my eye uh that's been a very big deal in the news in Spain. The Spanish government commissioned a big survey into problems of Catholic child abuse. This has been a, a major story in Spain for quite some time. Under the Franco regime in Spain, the Catholic Church had tremendous civil power. It was running a lot of schools, running adoption, this kind of thing. There was a big scandal many years ago where basically children were, were kind of being sold uh, through some of these adoption agencies. So this one looks at uh, try to try to find out how widespread was sexual child sexual abuse under this system, and they concluded that around two hundred thousand people, or about zero point six percent of of the of Spain's adult population, had been sexually abused by a priest as a child, and when you included teachers at Catholic schools, and again. The Catholic Church was very heavily embedded in the educational system. So it, you could almost consider that teachers in general, I guess, because it was so common. Um, but that rises to 400,000 people or over 1% of Spain's adult population. So the Spanish prime minister called that report a milestone in Spain's history. Uh, and they're kind of going through a reckoning similar to the one that Ireland did uh, several, several years ago. But it's a... Uh, it's a story that exposes just, you know, we live in a we live in an evil world. We live in a world where, even though people are sincere and um, often well-meaning in so many ways, you know, all the institutions of this world, whether they're governments, education, religion, they're all influenced by what the Bible calls the God of this world, uh, Satan, the devil, and and you see that in some of these. You, you see that in the Gaza attack. Uh, you see that in these stories as well, where you have religious authority figures uh, doing this to children in a way that just then would really uh, be very powerful and potentially persuade turning people away from God and the Bible for the rest of for the rest of their lives. That's a, a horrific uh, po possibility, or I guess not possibility, but reality uh, that 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 one percent of the entire population is more or less documented as having suffered a life-changing abuse, the evil is getting very uh, powerful. And, and in that case has been embedded pretty deeply for, for a long time. I, I believe that you're uh, writing more on that. You might've mentioned on the Trumpet Brief or, or another uh, Trumpet material. So go to the trumpet.com and subscribe to the uh, Trumpet Brief uh, daily email to get coverage of these things that we do kind of hit fast and furious and, and move on from, but so many of these things, it's not just a cliche. I mean, so many of these things are major, major events that, that you need to understand and need to dwell on and need to just kind of realize. Um, so you've, you've prepared another main story, um, even bigger than uh, for this week, at least, uh, than the Spanish, um, abuse, even bigger than the, you know, multicultural Europe standing up pretty, pretty hardcore in, in some cases to Islam. Um, what's, what's the biggest story? I could see some of those other stories potentially being bigger, but at least the one I think that's more immediate in terms of news 
this week. Not only do I have a soundbite for it, but this story revolves around a soundbite. I've not managed to fit one of those in yet. I have one now. So Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Meloni was tricked into taking a prank call from a couple of Russian pranksters. They've been doing this for a while now. They somehow managed to call up world leaders. I don't know how they get the phone numbers, how they get... I mean, I can't get through to my internet company on the phone. I don't know how <laughs> they managed to get all these prime ministers on the phone. Pretending to be someone, in this case, it was a couple of African leaders they were pretending to be, got a hold of Georgia Maloney and kind of just chatted to her about a whole range of things. What was most significant and what caught a lot of people's attention from this was what Georgia Maloney had to say about Russia's invasion of Ukraine and that war. Well, I see, I see that uh, there is a lot of fatigue, if I have to say the truth, from all the sides. We near the moment in which everybody understands that we need a, we need a way out. Yeah. The problem is to find a way out which uh, can be acceptable for both without destroying the international law. I've got some ideas about it, on how to manage this situation, but I'm waiting to to the right moment to try to put on the table these ideas I've got. In some ways, this is not surprising. We've speculated, lots of people have speculated, European leaders are probably getting tired of this concept. European leaders are probably looking for an off-ramp, a way out from this conflict. But to have it confirmed so dramatically that, yes, your things are in hand, we're presenting ideas, we're talking about things. Uh, you know, She said she's basically got a solution that she's kind of put together, that she's waiting for an opportune time to present. Uh, to have that uh, really does show that, uh, that we could be seeing some kind of end towards the Ukraine war and not really a good one for Ukraine, as you heard about from Jeremiah. And it's been... Western assistance that has enabled Ukraine to stand up for, to Russia. And if that's not forthcoming, uh, then things don't really look good for Ukraine. There's been a lot of there's been a, so there's been a lot of news articles. There's been a lot of commentators talking about how do we have a peace plan? Uh, where do we go from here? It's a stalemate. How do we turn this stalemate into a peace when neither side really has anything that they want or their stated war aims? But we can certainly see that efforts to to produce that peace uh, are underway. And well, once again, we're we're talking about a peace process, and we're a church, and we're kind of opposed to it. I mean, I I don't want to put it quite that way, but <laughs> you know, this is it, it can sound a bit unusual. We're talking about peace in Gaza, and we're talking about how a ceasefire is a terrible thing. And I think when it comes to Ukraine. There are some pitfalls potentially for for pulling out and stopping and and stopping. And what we've seen and what we focused on a lot in this conflict is a level of evil from Russian President Vladimir Putin that uh, he is completely willing to commit genocide. He has he doesn't like we heard from Jeremiah. He doesn't even care about his own casualties, let alone things like Ukrainian civilian casualties. Uh, he. You saw where where soldiers basically with Russian support completely flattened cities in Syria. Nobody cared, and Israel is much more precise and careful in Gaza, and it's all over the all over the newspapers. Uh, but they're bringing that approach to Ukraine, and 
without getting into the whole political debate of should America be supporting that or not, the fact is that if he gets away with it, just like Hamas, you've left evil unconfronted. And you can know that he that evil is going to continue and it's going to try new things. And so you've got, I think, that aspect of it that he is fulfilling that role that you heard about from Jeremiah, that Prince of Rosh role, and uh, he's going to continue doing that after this Ukraine war. I think the other thing from this story that's fascinating to look at is this deal that we've talked about. You're, the, right from the start of this, we've said Germany is very probably done a deal with with Vladimir Putin. We saw the way that they, because of world public opinion and because of the European Union and countries like Poland, they couldn't publicly support Russia in this invasion. And so we got this very two-faced German response with a big announcement. We're going to send this and then the small print. They'll arrive in three years' time. Um, or we're going to send that. And then you find out that they get there and they're all broken. Uh, and even in the run-up to the war, where Britain was trying to fly in supplies and flew them around Germany because it was an open secret that Germany would do whatever they could to th frustrate any rearming of Ukraine. So we've speculated uh, at that, but a secret deal, you know, sooner or later, secret deals come out into the open. And so we've also forecast a much more public break between Europe and the United States. And a peace deal over Ukraine, you know, this is a potential for Vladimir Putin to break off Europe away from the United States. I'm not saying that that is definitely going to happen. It is prophesied to happen at some point, and that's something to watch for now. Georgia Maloney, in that phone conversation, she talked a lot about trying to get different energy resources. And a peace deal with Russia could unlock a whole lot of energy for Europe. There are a lot of carrots out there. I mean, if you look at the economy, economic problems, inflation, and Vladimir Putin can say, well, I've got cheap oil, I've got cheap gas. You know, some of the biggest house items in a household budget, we could cut that by a third. What's that going to do to your re-election? What's that going to do uh, to your economy, to your unemployment and inflation if we can solve this problem together? So there's a real carrot there. Uh, and you've got that potential then for that break. And that break is something that Herbert W. Armstrong talked about, talked about very directly. It's something that Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry has talked about. You know, the Bible does prophesy that uh, that Europe will betray America. It talks about this kind of lover's relationship between America and Europe. That's what you have right now. They're close allies, but it says they're working behind the scenes against you. And then other Bible prophecies talk about an alliance between Europe and Asian powers, Russia and China. So we're going to see some kind of a switch. This phone call from Georgia Maloney could indicate that, that there's talks around that, that switch becoming much more public underway right now. You know, it's interesting that that sound clip there is in English. She's Italian and they're uh, Russian, but uh, posing as, as Africans. English Still the language of international diplomacy, uh, and there's a reason for that. The British Empire was powerful. The American Empire, quote-unquote, followed right on after that. That's no longer the case. Other powers are seeking to take that foremost role in international relations violently, if necessary. And uh, Mr. Flurry has said we are entering into the times of the Gentiles. The, the evil, and I, I appreciate how you focus on that, the evil itself the evil is now beyond the control of the British. It's now beyond the control of the Americans, and not that the British and the Americans are inherently less evil. We've talked about that before, but it is getting out of control. But again, the substance of what the Italian prime minister has admitted, they're very 
uh, interesting in that candid moment. And, uh, you know, what are we going to see become more and more open as these times of the Gentiles develop? Our fourth region is Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, you watch Anglo-America all week long. What have you noticed this week? A lot of legal drama in uh, Anglo-America this week. A court in New York began a hearing to determine if Donald Trump can be convicted of business fraud. Another court in Florida continued a separate hearing to determine if Donald Trump is guilty of mishandling classified documents. And yet a third court in Colorado began a hearing to determine if Trump can be barred from office using the 14th Amendment for his alleged role in the January 6th protest. It's interesting. We go from these major, major conflicts, these major, major events in, in other parts of the world. And when we come to Anglo-America, you know, sometimes it's dramatic. But in this week, it's all coming down to the minutia of a court case involving one man. To me, that just shows how amazing it is, how much is dependent on that one man who's the target of those court cases and uh, how that's something that the Trump editor-in-chief has been pointing to from the beginning, that it all relies on God ultimately, but what God is choosing to do through one individual. So that's why the uh, ins and outs and minutia of, of a court case you know, on business records is in that sense at the level of some of these other stories. Your main story that you want to drill down on, can you go ahead and give that to us? It's funny, like while you're going through all these minutia of these court cases against Donald Trump, really trying to just grasp at straws and do whatever you can to bar him from holding office again, you've had one of the biggest presidential scandals in U.S. history break with 82,000 pages of Biden email records released uh I think, to the House Oversight Committee. I think so far they've only released 14 of those to the public. Uh, but this is one of those cases that, like, you, you remember how big the Hillary Clinton email scandal was. And in that email scandal, Hillary Clinton was using a private email server for government business instead of her government email server, so you couldn't check her records. But as far as we know, on that private email server, she was still identifying herself as... Hillary Clinton, where in this case, uh, from what the House Oversight Committee is saying, is like you're going through these emails and they said that uh, Biden's primarily using sh three shadow email addresses, Robinware456, uh, JRBware, Robert L. Peters, and um, I think, well, I think those are the main three saying that not only is he using his own like private emails like Clinton was, uh, He's trying to obscure his own name. So he's not – this isn't like a, a secretary of state saying, well, let's just do this between us so it's not on the official servers. This is like what I'm about to tell you, I do not want anyone to know came from me or any other member of the Biden family because based on what the other House Oversight Committee documents have shown um, – it, this is likely involved in both bribery and money laundering scandals, considering he's under investigation for that $10 million bribe, or I guess that's technically two $5 million bribes uh, he took from um, a prominent Ukrainian oligarch. Actually, Hosts Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer uh, was on Fox News this week um, uh, 
asking a lot of questions about this. So actually, here's a clip from how he summarized this scandal. It's a stunning amount. 82,000 emails. They've produced 14. So they have 81,986 more to go. But this is how many instances Joe Biden used a fake name to conduct government business on his government email. So here we have a president that used a fake name, a pseudonym in a government email at least 82,000 times. We've learned that his company had at least 20 fake companies. Uh, We've learned that uh, they were influence peddling with our biggest adversaries around the world. And what we're now learning through the bank statements is that they were laundering money. So this is a serious issue. And one reason we're concerned about the emails, obviously, Joe Biden, in one of his many lies to the American people, said he had an absolute wall between the government and his family. That's not true. Yeah, so as you heard in that clip right there, like 82,000 pages of emails is a stunning amount uh, of emails. Uh, And at the very least, like I said, they've only released 14 pages of it to the public so far. It proves that those 16 times that Joe Biden said, um, I never talked to my son about his overseas business uh, dealings. Yeah, that's simply not true. Uh, We've got 82,000 pages of evidence that he is very involved uh, whether he's called himself Robin Ware or not with his son's uh, overseas business dealings, um, including, like I said, the, the sports cars uh, Hunter Biden accepted from oligarchs in Kazakhstan, the diamonds he accepted from oligarchs in China, the numerous bribes he accepted from oligarchs in Ukraine, all basically using the Biden name or, or, if you're honest, more particularly Biden's connection to Obama uh, as leverage to profit personally. They're like, you give my son this many million dollars, you're in good with the crime family, um, and the Obama administration can probably do you some favors. Uh, the Clinton email scandal was tied closely to like the uranium one scandal where the the Clinton family sold like 20% of America's uranium reserves to a Russian company, um, where these Biden scandals, I mean, it's, it's not just one, but you're looking at the world's biggest cobalt mine in, uh, the Congo used to be owned by an American company, uh, was sold to a, uh, Chinese company using Hunter Biden as a middleman, uh, coal companies in China, energy companies in Australia, uh, U.S. companies, automakers with uh, defense applications, all basically being um, sold around the world for influence. I mean, it's kind of a uh, colloquial way of putting it, but I think our uh, executive editor, Mr. Stephen Flurry, had one of the best uh, uh, inside jokes to refer to that, where he 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 called it like Trader Joe's uh, everything for sale, because uh, that's a grocery store for those in America who don't know. But it's like Joe Biden's a trader because he's putting all of America's natural resources on sale. Yeah, you're, you're trading uh, your the power over the American people, uh, a power that they have have uh, delegated to you. Uh, for personal enrichment and and the power that comes with with the the money, um, I mean this is the leader of the United States. This is the character of of the leadership uh, that Americans have allowed to uh, seize the presidency, um, 
And the other thing to me that's amazing is how these scandals can be news or not news. I mean, it was wall-to-wall Hillary Clinton's emails, right, for a while uh, because there were news executives willing to cover it. This happens, 82,000. That's what it, I just looked that up. It's uh, 63 War and Peace <laughs> books. And, you know, War and Peace, one of the you know thickest novels, probably the thickest novel you could ever read. Uh, that's 63 of those. Um, and, I mean, it's, it's making the news. How could it not? But um, it's not wall-to-wall. And, uh, and that's, that, that's based on decisions being made by news executives uh, in, in powerful places. Um, so, so you have to pierce through the news and look at the principle. You, you have to be able to, to take a news event and compare it to a right principle to know how important it is. You cannot rely on how much CNN or Fox News is covering it to know uh, just how important it is. You cited in your notes here, Isaiah 1.5, the whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint and recommended America under attack. What Trump editor-in-chief and Key of David presenter Gerald Flurry has been saying for decades now is how much it matters what the head and the heart is doing and if it's sick morally, if it's sick and spiritually, he would say. That affects everything. We keep thinking that it doesn't. It does. The character of our leaders affects our our nation. Do go to thetrumpet.com and read America Under Attack. You're listening to KPCG, Trumpet Hour, Week in Review. We'll be right back. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the weekend review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour Weekend Review. For our panel discussion, we're returning to this major ongoing topic that is so important. Even if there weren't new developments this week on this topic, this would still be very much worth paying attention to because I think it's very underestimated. Um, but like we said last week, it ties to something that is a force throughout history. And that's the fact that. You know, when your side goes off and murders men, women, and children, as Hamas, the radical Islamic group, did on October 7th, that's the time when you take down the little Palestinian flag from your bio. (laughs) You delete your posts about, you know, the Jews or rats or dogs or infections or whatever. You know, you lie low, even if you still harbor this sympathy for radical Islam and hatred for, for Jews. That's typically the time when you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to lie low and sit this one out. And yet exactly the opposite happened. I am dumbfounded by how the opposite has happened. And those Palestinian flags haven't just shown up on the bios. They've shown up in, you know, three by five feet flags in in their in their dozens in the streets of Dearborn, Michigan and, and cities around the world. It's it's crazy. There's stars of David being painted on. French homes carved into doorbells in France. There's uh, swastikas and stuff being painted on Las Vegas uh, street corners. There's uh, people ripping down the signs that simply are promoting what Hamas did at Cornell. Uh, Asian threatened to shoot up the Jewish center there with the exact type of rhetoric that you've heard from 
Islamist supporters, Islamist members of Congress, in fact, just copying that exact type of rhetoric and almost taking it into his own hands, stabbing in China of an Israeli diplomat. Example after example of people saying, this is our chance not to disassociate ourselves from from people who murdered babies and women and children and and committed rape and, and did just the most graphic carnage you could imagine. This is the time where we spring to their, their support and spring to their help. It's just dumbfounding to me, but there is a reason for it. Yeah, I wanted to uh, mention just one glaring indication of just the darkness of, of what's really happening here with all those people who are now raising the Palestinian flag, supposedly because they are appalled by Israel defending itself and they're appalled by the fact that Muslims are being killed. So the interesting thing here is that all of these people didn't have much to say when ISIS killed tens of thousands of Muslims in Iraq and Syria and Libya. And all the people now waving the Palestinian flag, they never said very much when an Arab dictator alongside Russia killed tens of thousands of Muslims in Syria. They also didn't say much when some 400,000 Muslims in Yemen were killed in recent years or when tens of thousands of Rohingya Muslims were killed in Myanmar. They didn't say much when report after report showed China imprisoning over a million Muslims in Xinjiang, torturing and murdering huge numbers of them. But now we suddenly see American university students out in droves to protest the fact that some Muslims are being killed. Now we see tens of thousands of pro-Palestinian demonstrators take over London. We see Russians attempting an actual pogrom in Dagestan. And so many others are waving the flag of Palestine and calling for you know, the killing of Muslims to be stopped at all costs. And so you have to wonder why all these people were essentially silent when it was ISIS killing Muslims or Assad or Iran or the Buddhists or the Chinese. Why were they all so quiet then and they're so loud now? And the answer, of course, is that this is not really about concern for Muslims. It's driven by an unbridled hatred for Jews. It's, you know, it's just the fact that the Jews are the ones who are now defending against the barbaric attacks that they suffered. And it, it shows that all of this protesting that we're seeing is mainly driven by hatred for Jews. I think the other part of this that really shocks me, I mean, certainly at the start of this conflict, I thought, okay, well, this was so horrific that for once Israel will fight a war in Gaza without right. all of these anti-Semitic attacks right. that normally accompany Israel having any kind of conflict. So it's like, well, it's they're so obviously right that no right-thinking person will oppose them this time. Uh, I was very wrong about that. But I think one of the things that really shocks me as well is that how this time it's institutionalized. Certainly in the UK, and maybe it's not reached quite that level in the US, but I think it has at college campuses, campus administration, uh, certain US lawmakers. But you look, for example, at the protests, riots really, that have been going on in London and the action of local government and the police, I would say that their their response has been anti-Semitic. Yes. I mean, you look you look at Westminster uh, Council, where they allowed these pro-Hamas demonstrators to set up a stage next to the Cenotaph. I mean, if you're not from the UK, the Cenotaph is Britain's most important monument to its war dead. It's probably the most sacred spot in the country. And they let them set up a stage there. And you had Hamas sympathizers calling for a Jewish genocide next to the symbol to commemorate all of those that died trying to defeat the last power that attempted a Jewish genocide. 
Uh, and Westminster Council, you know, this local government okayed that. And one of the things I think that has shocked us all, there's been all this footage around the world of people tearing down the, the posters about uh, Jews that have been kidnapped. Right. You know, people have been putting up these missing posters and you've had usually Palestinians coming and tearing them down. In London, it's been the police. Huh. They've been the ones tearing down these posters. They say that it is to avoid community tension. But this kind of very one-sided policing has been anti-Semitic. You know, the way that you shout and you, you, you call for a jihad and the police will preemptively go on Twitter and post a tweet excusing you right. and saying, well, actually saying the armies of Islam must gather for jihad is just talking. That can mean something other than armed conflict. They will go and do that even without any prompting. Uh, if you wave a Palestinian flag, they will defend you. But if you put up posters, there's also footage of somebody just walking down the street with an Israeli flag and the police are really aggressively in there shoving him, um, pushing him out the way. And again, they'll say, well, we're just trying to avoid community tension. But it's quite clearly they are on the side of the anti-Semites. They are themselves anti-Semitic and institutionally so. It has become so deeply ingrained that it's not migrants protesting or even young people university students protest it's in the institutions it's in at least local government and it's in you know it's train drivers leading chants of free free palestine over the loudspeakers on 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 britain's train systems uh it's authority figures as well it's it's police officers complaining about uh not complaining arresting a man for complaining about the palestinian flags we saw that uh clip going viral i mean it's just uh, speaking of young people if you're a younger listener this is not normal. <laughs> this is this is wildly not normal. Even if you're an, an adult, um, we, we get used to things really quickly. This is not normal. This is not right. And really, there's something different going on here. I mean, humans have hated other groups, you know, for as long as there have been humans. But there is something different about this particular group that everybody has a has a special hatred for. I think this ties in with like just all of these things we're talking about like people supporting Hamas when you'd think that they'd have the least excuse to do so everything I think that's a symptom of what happens when you start to compromise your thinking based on a faulty foundation uh, our editor and chief Mr. Flurry has written a lot about uh, a passage in Colossians 2 which talks about will worship and what happens when you worship your own will and your own way of seeing things, how you disregard facts and you just push forward. That opens your mind up to a lot of evil spiritual forces. There's plenty of evidence out there that Israel is not the most horrible genocidal dictatorship in the planet, right. that they have a legitimate right to their land, that what the terrorists are doing to them are on the flip side what is the problem in the middle east but because people for the longest time anytime there's been a small flare-up anytime there's been like a a missile being shot down whether going from gaza to israel or vice versa the narrative they hear is that these evil israelis have captured this poor innocent people and are terrorizing them and these people need to be liberated when it's say just a minor skirmish when nobody dies you could think okay i could see that narrative and then all of a sudden, a year down the road, it's a bigger skirmish and a few people die. But, okay, that's a little bit bloody, but I could sort of see, like, based off of what I thought before, this makes sense. And little by little, these things that – these attacks on Israelis, on Jews get worse and worse. But because people have saw 
the previous attacks with this lens, with this foundation, they just can't unthink their thinking. And before you know it, they're excusing and even applauding horrible things that perhaps way back when they would have never considered applauding. That's basically what happened with the Holocaust. You know, Hitler comes in, says, "Okay, I'm a raging anti-Semite, but all we're just going to do is we're going to restrict Jews from going to stores at these certain hours. Right. Well, that might be a little extreme, but okay, that's not that bad. And now we're going to restrict on who they can and can't marry or what citizenship they can have. Well, that's getting a little bit further, but, you know, no one's dying yet, et cetera, et cetera. And lo and behold, the eventual climax of that is Auschwitz. Right. We're we, seeing the same thing play again right now. Yeah, we are. We, this this is the same uh, a symptom of the exact same thing. There is something different here. And, and uh, uh, this is like I said, this is not logical. This is not normal. This is not something you just get used to. Uh, you mentioned the term evil spiritual forces. Um, and I don't know, a lot of Western minds are like, oh, you know, oh, don't get religious on me. Um, National Review, um, it's, I, it's an opinion piece, I'm sure, but it says anti-Semitism is clearly spiritual in nature. I challenge you to say that that's wrong. I mean, anti-Semitism, its nature is spiritual. And this particular writer, he concludes, I take it as evidence that the Old Testament is true. These are the people God chose. And somehow the rest of the world knows it. <laughs> that is the case. That is the case. There is something special about the Jews. They're not better human beings than other human beings, but they have a special role and a special place and a special reason to be attacked by the evil. And what is attacking them is evil. So I'll use this opportunity to promote Herbert W. Armstrong's book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, which tells you where the Jewish people came from in the first place and why they are especially targeted. That is all the time we've got for the uh, discussion. We do want you to email us our thoughts. Some of you have been. Thank you to those of you who've been emailing letters at thetrumpet.com. Thank you to our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. And thanks to Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz once again for their engineering and production. But thank you most of all for listening to The Week in Review. We look forward to being back with you on the Wednesday edition of Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.